What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. All right. All right. Well, let's get it started. Let's just jump in. Uh, I'm Chase Winninger, host of the podcast, and down we got Lee McClellan today. How is everyone? Co-host of the podcast, and then we got John Brunges. Welcome. Thank you. Good to, good to be here. Oh, yeah. John, what's your official title? I am the Migratory Bird Program Coordinator. So you're the top dog when it comes to migratory birds. Hunted migratory birds, like... Uh, waterfowl and, and doves and things like that. All waterfowl, doves, sandhill. Sandhill cranes. Sandhill. Um, Rails, coots, gallinules, all, all those different species. So. That is, uh, and that's coming up. Most of that's coming up. Yep. Some of it we've had in, I mean, we've dove season, obviously, is kind of come and gone. Yeah. And uh, we are, but we've also had rail season for the last month or so, and we've had a number of snipe, things like that have been in season, but uh, early uh or in our early goose season, our early teal wood duck and teal season have been in, but uh, Thanksgiving kicks off most of our waterfowl season. Yeah, and I, I never have waterfowl hunted before. It's pretty much the one type of hunting that I haven't done. Don't it's, do it. It's terrible. That, people terrible, t- people tell me addictive. it's addicting. Yeah. Good, say goodbye to your wallet. Yeah, that's what they say. They say as soon Just as you try it, throw all the money out and get it over with. I'm going to go this year, but I'm going with somebody who has decoys, who has all that stuff. Because I, I mean, I'm I'm 100% sure I'm going to like it, but I need to. Before I throw a ton of money at it, I don't have a ton of money to throw at it, so I can't do oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do that anyway. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get somebody to take me out there. People like to say it's really horribly expensive, but there's ways to do it without spending a fortune. Exactly the I'm, way I do it because I can't afford all that stuff either. I have seen decoys in the store before. I used to work at Sportsman's Warehouse in Lexington. I know those decoys can be pretty pricey, so they can. But you can also find the the old hot buy birds, or you can find used birds or something like that, and you can buy a dozen for. Yeah, you know, under fifty bucks yeah. in a lot of cases. You don't have to have the fanciest, you know, of everything. You, well, I know in our sandhill hunt last year, it looked like Kroger bags they were using. Kroger bags with a little fake head on them. Absolutely, wind socks or yeah. uh, those are those are effective for certain species for geese and for for cranes. And uh, but you, you again, you just don't have, always have to have the fanciest everything. We got a uh, a lot to talk about today. I put some fillers out earlier on social media, and I kind of said, "What do you want to hear about?" And a lot of it was. Uh, Waterfowl related. There was some other stuff in there too, and then I know Lee, uh, you've got some no trim down over there. Mm-hmm. New state record fish, mm-hmm. blue cat, one hundred six point nine pounds, beating the old record of one hundred four. Yes, caught by Bruce Midkiff. That for a while was the fifty pound uh, class or line class world record, but that's been surpassed now by a hundred forty three pound fish that was Jeez, caught in Louise. June of twenty eleven. So. That's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, one hundred forty three pound blue. Could you imagine? I can't. It's <laughs> <laughs> caught in Kerr Reservoir. Where, uh, so this one was caught in the Ohio River, just like yes. the previous record. Tell, um, me, tell me about it. He um, is 58 inches long, which is you know, mind-boggling. 24-inch girth, which is even more mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, he was drifting a live moon eye below uh, Olmstead Lock and Dam in the extreme lower part of the Ohio River, not far from the confluence with the Mississippi. And the thing is, it was caught by a man by the name of Glenn Grogan. He's a uh, taxidermist. And he was competing in a tournament called the Walter Hayes Memorial Tournament and uh, named in honor of his good friend and fishing partner who passed away last year. So I was talking to to Adam Martin, our fisheries biologist, yesterday about this catch, and he thought that that was pretty cool that the guy who uh, was good friends with the the tournament uh, namesake uh, caught a state record 
uh, after his friend had passed. Wow, it was pretty cool. That's all. I mean, that's an impressive story. The most impressive part that about that to me personally might be the live moon eye. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever caught a moon eye. Have you ever? Um, you know, we we have a moon eye record. Well, no, I'm just saying. Have you ever personally actually? Um, caught I've caught one? skipjack, but not moon eye. We caught two moon eye in Elkhorn last year um, on little uh, spinner baits, right? Mm-hmm. And this was late in the year. And I mean, I'm telling you, you pull that fish out of the water, you pop the hook out of its mouth, you put it back in, it's floating. I don't know how you keep one alive. Well, they're kind of like shag could be like that as well. You got to be the most fragile fish I've ever caught, literally. But he was just drifting it below the lock and dam, not doing anything particularly special. Caught on 80-pound braid. 80-pound braid. Mm-hmm. Now, the um, now the blue cat, and see, this is where I'm kind of confused. There's a state record blue cat, which is now 106. And mm-hmm. if you look at, if you look in our state records, that is the largest fish listed in the state records. Yes. But... You go up to Slato and you look at the, or it says we caught a 206-pound spoonbill at one point in time. It says it was caught, but it doesn't list it as a state record. Do you know anything about that? You know, I do not. But a lot of times, those kinds of catches were just never verified. They never went to the trouble. It might have been before we were verifying them. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it has the replica up there. And it, it says 206-pound spoonbill, but you look on the state records, it's not listed. So it had to be something where somebody just didn't didn't do something. Or, you know, sometimes they find them dead. Yeah, that's, that's true, too. I didn't even think about that. I guess it's not a state and record. And the guy who caught the current state record. Uh, um, or it could have been, you can't snag a state record either. Right, netted no. or netted or snag. He caught his uh, fishing, you know, he was fishing a spinnerbait for bass. That's, and uh, the rostrum caught the line and yeah. went down, and then spinnerbait caught him in the side. That's how the uh, what, what was that bass's name out there in California that turned up dead? No, she had a, she had a name. People went there to fish for this fish. It was a state, it was a new world record largemouth. Somebody caught her, foul hooked her, side of the face, mm-hmm. and uh, caught her, weighed her. It was a new world record, but it couldn't be. It, oh, it, that's right. That was has like about ten years ago. What? Yeah, that fish had a name. I, I can't remember. I can't remember it either. I, I should know it. But people went after that world record bass was caught because you could think, got to think, a world record largemouth is like a lottery ticket if you catch it. Oh my god! So when they released that fish back into the lake, people were swarming trying to catch that big bass. Nobody ever caught it. They found it belly up uh, in the lake about two years later. Hmm. Would have been ridiculous though. But that's how that could be how that spoonbill was caught. It just un, unofficial, or it couldn't be officially a record because it was snagged or something like that. Oh well, I wanted to hear the story about that blue cat, so I'm glad you told me. And um. Yes, it beat Bruce, Bruce Mick have caught it in the lower Ohio as well in 1998, the previous one. And it was for a while the 50-pound line class world record, but this one won't be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, since uh, um, it's, you know, not going to, that guy's crushed the 50-pound line class world record with 143 pounds. That is the all-tackle world record blue cat now. That's ridiculous. Jeez, Lee, keep punching the microphone. I'm telling you. All right, so I don't know what you have up, Lee, but here's what I was thinking we'd do today. Okay. Because we got JB in here, so we got to talk some waterfowl. And I have a list of a couple of things I wanted to ask about with waterfowl as well, or migratory birds in general. Most of it's waterfowl. I guess, yeah, there's a couple other migratory bird things I kind of have on my mind. And then I don't know if you have anything particularly, but like I said, I put some feelers out on social media earlier to see if anybody had it. Had Let's go for them. Well, I'll do that last. Okay. Let's go ahead and knock out the stuff that we... Because, I mean, I might have more roll in. I still got my phone here in front of me, so I'll keep on looking for them. I had a guy email, where's the podcast? Yes, oh, I know. I was I know. like, we're doing one tomorrow. No, I got to... Take I, a chill. I'll go ahead and apologize <laughs> to everybody because, I mean, it has been a while. It's been mm-hmm. longer this time than it's been before, and a lot of that has to do with what's been going on up here. Mm-hmm. I've been in the field like crazy lately, filming every day. If I'm not filming, I'm... And I did take a, a couple of days personal to go hunt Indiana last week, too. I'll, I'll talk about that later as well. But some of the uh, waterfowl stuff I wanted to get to 
and these are questions I kind of got given to me because, like I said, I'm not really a waterfowler. Mm -hmm. um, one of them was about the uh, waterfowl surveys up north because I guess that directly affects our waterfowl season here. Absolutely. We, uh, for for the more than the last 50 years, they've done surveys on the breeding grounds uh, up in northern U.S., Canada, and they fly those surveys every summer, and that gives us an idea of how many birds there are out there. Okay. And so this year's survey was down a little bit from the last couple years. Uh, it was down about 15% across mm. most species. But you have to remember, everything was at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. Last year and year before, since 1950, we were at the highest levels that we'd ever had. Mallards, total ducks, all that, we were at our highest levels that we'd ever had. Okay. So down 15% is, is a drop, but we're still well above long-term averages. Mm -hmm. We still have lots of birds. We're still well above any thresholds that make us reconsider the liberal season that we're in. So, We've been in the, the liberal season now for over 20 years, and mm -hmm. most of our hunters probably don't even know what it was like to be in a moderate or restrictive package. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, mm -hmm. one day we'll probably get, have it again. But well, for right now, we're, uh, we're, we've been experiencing some really great years of duck hunting. So, I mean, population swings usually go up. You want a stable population, but typically they go up and then they go down. It's, it's driven by weather. If yeah. we have Last year, we didn't have any snow. We didn't get any snow on the prairies. There was no water, no ponds for the birds to nest in. And so the numbers are down a little bit. Okay. If we get a lot of snow this winter, then those numbers will bump right back up. Hmm. It's uh, The population's very driven by how much precipitation we get in the prairies. When do those birds really start moving down? Uh, they, they are moving. They, there's a couple of movements. There's a movement that's been taking place for the last week or two. Okay. Uh, the birds, especially ones that are headed to Louisiana and places like that, are moving through right now. There's always kind of a pretty good push around Thanksgiving, I mean, around Halloween. Uh-huh. Things like teal move through even earlier. They're coming through in August and September. And uh, then, you know, we'll see our, our major push of mallards will be in December. So I guess the early goose season, which has already passed, is typically for resident geese? It's totally resident geese. So, okay. It, it was totally designed with the idea of controlling resident populations. Now, of course, we ban geese. We do. And I think I've heard before that there's a quote of over 1,000 geese banded locally. Yep, we, 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 we try to ban at least 1,000 in the state. Uh, and usually it's more like fourteen to sixteen hundred. Now, do you shoot to have that banding done before the early season opens? We we have a very narrow window where we can ban geese. We only ban geese when they're flightless. Okay. So it's the last two weeks of June and the first week of July. Okay. That's it. Every every goose is banded in that window. So and then I guess our early season is it? Is there more of an emphasis on the the bands during the early season? Because I guess you can probably collect more locally. I mean, as far as hunters go? Yeah, or I mean, is it, I'm, the purpose of the bands, obviously, is kind of to see your take rate. And, it's, a, it's totally to monitor the harvest rates on the birds. What we're interested in is how much of an impact does hunting have on a population. Mm -hmm. And we assume that a banded bird is a random representation of the population. So as we look back at our, our harvest data, we harvest banded and harvested this year about five percent so when you look at that because obviously you don't know you probably can guess guesstimate what percentage of the population you're banding but you're basically saying okay we banded these birds these birds are the population sample right right so then if you take five percent of the birds that were banded you're assuming you took five percent of the population of the total population so those yep. those those banded birds that's why we have a certain size quota yeah. because of our population we had more birds in our population we have somewhere between 35 and 45 thousand 
birds in Kentucky. So we banned, again, around 1,000 birds. If we had 100,000 birds, we banned a few more to okay. make sure that we had a better representation. And so, so say you banned those 1,000 birds and uh, 400 are killed. And these are, I don't know what the numbers are, so I'm just throwing numbers out there. That would be way high. Okay, let's say, let's say. Yeah, about 5% of what we, so if we banned 1,000, we, we, we kill 50. So okay, so if you banned a thousand, you kill fifty. So let's say you banned a thousand, uh, you kill fifty, and then you get uh, two birds turned in or two bands turned in from Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Then you could say, okay, well we're thinking we're roughly taking five percent of the population here, and there is a good percentage of our population going to Arkansas Absolutely. because you're seeing your turns. And, and wood ducks are maybe a better example of that. Our geese, we we have a we can I got come back to geese in a second, but we only only young geese move mm -hmm. really. We have. If a bird is a year-old bird, some portion of our population will do what we call molt migration, and mm -hmm. they will go from Kentucky right before their molt, which is that late June, early July period. And instead of doing it in Kentucky, they head to James Bay and Hudson Bay and just go up the subarctic regions of Canada and molt up there. And they, mm -hmm. it's called a molt migration, and it's just it's kind of a pre-programmed thing to send. And they don't all do it, but some of them do it. And so... If they're not killed in Kentucky, it's generally those birds making that that migration up there and then coming back. Hmm. Uh, but for something like wood ducks, wood ducks are something we also banned a lot of. We ban we kill about half of our wood ducks in here in September, and the other half in Louisiana in December and January. Kind of half the banded ones that uh -huh. we actually get killed. Yes. So what is the percentage? Because I actually got to go down there and see the wood duck banding this year. I filmed that piece. Uh, we went out there and we shot the nets. Yep. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Then we caught 212 or yep. 217 that day or something like yep. that. It was, uh, it was, I mean, it was really cool to see. Aside from the mosquitoes, I, I enjoyed every second of it. <laughs> Welcome to the West Kentucky yeah. swamps. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to this year. Yeah, well, God, mosquitoes yeah. were terrible. When I, woke, when I woke up and saw that first frost the other day, it was like Christmas morning. Uh -huh. And then last night, a mosquito got me yeah. while I was hunting. So it's not quite there yet. Yeah, but I'm Soon. ready for them to be gone. <laughs> Man, you both. They were eating me alive this year. So what, uh, what percentage of the uh, wood ducks actually get taken? About, they're higher than geese. We mm -hmm. shoot about 15%. Okay. of our population of wood ducks uh we, we we harvest a pretty high level wood ducks are wood ducks you can harvest up to about 17 percent mm -hmm. before you start to negatively impact the population okay so we sit pretty close to that that threshold mm -hmm. we so we want to band a lot of wood ducks part of why we band a lot to make sure that we are not over harvesting yeah what's the i mean I, I can't remember if it was 400 ducks on that wma specifically we were at or if, not that's not statewide though what we we banned almost two thousand. Okay, it's around two thousand. So, so they must have, they must have just been shooting for four hundred on that WMA because you obviously right. want to spread your right. bands. Yeah, out. we 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 stop like again the guys at Slews at, at times they may be able to catch over a thousand birds there alone. That's right. Uh, and Ballard is the same way, and so we have to stop them. So our it again is a representation of the entire state, not mm -hmm. just these two areas, and so we stop them at certain levels to make sure that we have a even distribution of the state. I'm sure you watched that video. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you did a fantastic job. There, I loved it. There well thank you. Uh -huh. There have got to, there had to be four or five hundred birds up there, not catchable, not close enough to the bait, but just in that area, there had to be five hundred wood ducks there. Absolutely. Because I don't think we caught half of them. No. It, it, there there have been I've been at that WMA one time where a thousand birds flew in at first light. That's ridiculous. And in fact we waited the the manager there at the time was Mike Borden was pre before Charlie and he, he would let them come in 200 at a time. The first 200 came in, eight, 
flushed off and was gone. And then 200 more. And so he waited all the way till the end to let all the first birds have fed and get out of there mm -hmm. so that they didn't see the net get okay. shot. And sense. so he did for five weeks in a row, he put the net on birds because he was willing to sit and wait on them. And it was, hmm. uh, my, I don't know if my uh, nerves are good enough to do that. I'm ready to shoot. No. You know, I'm ready. Once they're on, if they're on the bait, they're like, you got to catch them when you that's, can. But. That's what Charlie, he, uh, and I don't know, people probably need to just watch this piece and they can do it if they go to YouTube and just type in Kentucky Field uh, duck or rocket net or yeah. anything like that. But um, he let them flush twice, maybe three, almost three times and it, before he actually fired the net. Because each time they flush, if they come back, they come back in a bigger number. Yep. And uh, you're basically just hoping they don't eat the bait out or they don't decide to get full and not come back. So, But if you watch the video in slow motion, which I did frame by frame, before he fires that net, those birds are starting to flush. Yep. You know what I mean? So I think if he hit that, that trigger or that uh, detonator, a second later, we would have had a completely different outcome. He pushing it. I mean, it was it's, right there. It's it's a it's a it's a nerve wracking thing. Yeah. It is a uh, hang on for you do your life. People lots of time ask, can they come go with duck banding with us? And we don't generally take people because you may you mean you have to sit and wait for it's right, and you don't want to get in a case where you're firing the net when it's not right just because yeah. you have people there. Yeah. And so it's a it's it's a challenging thing to get people to see, but. Uh, it, it can be pretty nerve-wracking when they get up there and they you think your fingers all but squeeze in and boom, away they go. Yeah, yeah. Well, I literally think that as the net was getting fired, I'm talking the half second before it, I think those birds were starting to flush. Because when I watched the other flushes, I had that GoPro right up there by the net, you know, so I had a really good look at the birds. And uh, when they flushed the other times, typically one duck would take off and then the others would kind of follow behind. And I almost think that the duck that took off first was a mature female. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It could be. They're the hardest ones to catch. Yeah, they're the hardest ones to catch, but I didn't know if they were kind of the leaders of the group. I, would, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, and uh, it was a mature female that second time as the net was getting ready to fire that started taking off up in the air. So I was thinking those birds were getting ready to be gone. So they, 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 they Those old females, they've been there. They've seen that before. They know they're wary, and uh, they're, they, yeah, it's hard to catch them. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't see how it's possible because I don't remember how many mature females we caught that day. I said two hundred and seventeen ducks, and I would doubt that we had more than four or five mature females. That's the way. That's the way it goes. We have, we have to catch twenty five hundred, twenty five hundred wood ducks to get meet our quota of one hundred and twenty females. Really? I mean, that, that, that can't be an accurate, accurate representation of the population, can it? No, it's not. They're just they they're just warier. And yeah. the other thing is during our window. When we're able to catch birds, those adult birds are off molting and doing other things, and they're less subject to come into the bait. If we were able to catch in middle or late September, we might actually catch more adults yeah, uh, because they finished with their molting thing, and then they'd be more willing to come in. But obviously, we're hunting then, and we can't have bait out anywhere. Yeah, that makes sense. No baiting during yeah. hunting season. People get in trouble. Yeah. Um, well, something I wanted to ask about, and this kind of ties into what I already asked you. Youth Waterfowl Weekend is this weekend coming up. It will be that it's not this for, not next week, not this weekend in three days. It's the weekend. So it's the opening weekend of gun season. Uh yes. Huh. I wouldn't have. I guess I mean waterfowl yeah. hunters and yeah. deer hunters probably don't. Pretty much the separate part of the world. Yeah, yeah, they don't really run into each other too much. Um. So and again, that's eastern youth waterfowl season. See, I didn't. So know the that. debate yeah. we have two zones in the state. We have an eastern zone and a western zone. And so the eastern zone is probably the two-thirds, mm -hmm. eastern two-thirds of the state. Okay. And so you can hunt in the eastern half of the state that weekend. Uh, and then the western zone, 
youth season will be the weekend after uh, after the hunting season ends, first weekend first week in February. February. So, where, so where are we at here? What, Eastern? We're yeah. Eastern, definitely. That's probably Eastern, why. Eastern, we'd go all the way over to, uh, it's hard, be just around Hardin County, maybe a little bit over wet, even a western okay. county or two from mm-hmm. Hardin County. And everything north of Hardin County, too, yeah. I'm assuming. Okay. Yeah, it'd be basically, again, Louisville, Lexington, all that is east. Uh, I think Bowling Green is... I can't remember. I think the line, line is around Owensboro. Isn't it? A yeah, I mean, yeah. There's there's, there's line. a line of counties there. I mean, it's like this much western, this much yeah. eastern. Two, two thirds of the state yeah. is eastern. Yeah, yeah that, that's that, easy that, to show on. The yeah, screen. so that graphic's going to come across great yeah. on the podcast. We, we will. I, I, you didn't know I was clairvoyant. I'll tell you about that. <laughs> we we have a map of it now yeah. on our website that if somebody's really interested to see what the the county i can never remember the lee knows specific list of lee, counties. Where, where, where do you go to because when i talked to you on the phone earlier you said that the waterfowl guide wasn't out but it was on the well, website. well th- there's a waterfowl page under the game species that has all the pertinent information and the pdf is being produced right now okay um that's one of the things i wanted to say we're not printing a, a waterfowl hunting guide anymore so if you <clears throat> the pdf will be in a printable form it'll be easy for you to print off on your home computer or you can go to your local public library and print it off there for free or you can just refer to it on your phone. Yeah, that's what I do. If I, if like my hunting license and all my anything I need to refer to or something like that, if it's not, I screenshot it. I save it to my phone, and then I can just flip through my camera roll. And here in the state of Kentucky, I, I, I even do that with my hunting license and stuff like that. If I need, if I get checked, I show them on my phone. I went to Indiana last week to hunt, and I don't trust it up there. I don't know what they're like, so I actually carried hard copies of everything. Yeah, I did too. I just went to Arkansas fishing, and I had one folded up in my wallet. I don't know. I don't, like I said, I'm not going to risk it with other people's laws I'm not comfortable with. But, exactly. I'm not, I, but I did talk to the game warden here, and he said that digital copies do work. So yeah. even if – I mean, you can just access my profile on the mm-hmm. Fish and Wildlife website and pull it up on your phone almost anywhere you need to and screenshot yeah. it. Anybody who wanted that could do it like right now. The one difficulty in the waterfowl world is the – Water is that well? No, it's the it's the uh, federal duck stamp. Oh, yeah. So you have to have a signed federal duck stamp. So you can't screenshot that. You need mm-hmm. to have that. Yeah. Well, that was you can you can buy you can buy them online now, uh-huh. and there is a digital version, but it's only good for X number of days. Uh, so it's, I think it's like 30 days after purchase, they actually mail you a physical stamp, uh-huh. and so once those 30 days are up, then you still have to have that signed physical stamp with you i guess you kind of deal with a different uh world of regulations than our typical uh program managers here because you deal with everything you deal with is federal because it's all migratory yeah the the migratory bird treaty act Mm -hmm. gives the u.s fish and wildlife service the authority to manage migratory birds in the u.s they they allow us states to to set seasons and things but it's within their frameworks and Mm -hmm. with and that, that so you know deer we can do whatever we want if we with deer uh, you know Gabe and company they can set deer regulations however well, and, our, they and can, our commission can set it however they so want. they can try to set it well however that's, they want. that's true <laughs> but uh, we we are there are very specific rules mm-hmm. so like I hear one of my hunters love to ask how come we can't hunt in February mm-hmm. we'd love to hunt in February there's ducks and well the rule the reason is because the federal framework is the last the last day you can hunt ducks. In anywhere in North America is the last Sunday in January. January, yeah. So we can't, as much as my hunters might like it, we can't hunt in February. So we're really given a framework of federal law. Absolutely. And we have some room to work within. We so. can be more restrictive than the, than the framework. We are, in the Mississippi Flyway, we're allowed a 60-day duck season. Uh, and basically, the I think it's like between September 22nd 
and uh, that last Sunday in January. So we can choose our 60 days anywhere in that period. Uh, we're allowed, because we have two zones, to have one split. Mm -hmm. So like we have four days of Thanksgiving, and then we close the season, and then we have basically our remaining 56 days. If you go to that last Sunday in January, count back 56 days, that's when that that second split would start. So let me ask you a question. So obviously migratory birds, federal law, that's what we're talking about. But a lot of migratory birds leave the United States. We're Absolutely. talking Canada, Mexico, Argentina, mm -hmm. probably all over Central America, places I don't even understand. So do we work internationally with those other people as well? The Migratory Bird Treaty Act is, involves five countries. Uh -huh. It involves the, uh, the main players, United States and Canada, and, and then Mexico was a later addition, and, but also includes Russia and Japan. So what birds do we have that migra migrate to Russia and Japan? Japan is uh, some of our ducks. So, I mean, there was a, uh, in Louisiana or Arkansas last year or two, there was a Japan banded pintail. Uh, that was killed in one of the. There was a you know a Japanese band. I mean, that's a heck of a migration, but, but yeah, no you, doubt. But if you are in Texas, the sandhill cranes that you see in Texas almost entirely nest in Siberia. Huh. Uh, they're the, wow. the vast majority of the the mid continent population of cranes, which is different than the ones we have here in Kentucky. There's about seven hundred thousand birds in that population, and about five hundred thousand of those nest in Siberia. So I'm trying to picture Siberia on in the globe because I'm a, I'm a round earth. Uh -huh. So I'm trying to picture you know what exactly. I don't even know what the quickest way to get to Siberia would be Ac across the across Alaska. It basically there. If you imagine going from Texas, you go up through the country through Canada Alaska. into Alaska and across the Bering Sea, and then you're in Siberia. So, so those birds start there and. In Siberia and come from across that Bering Sea, that little yeah. Rhine bridge that people walked across so many years ago and now it's flooded. But they come across that short distance across the Bering Sea there and then into, into Alaska and then down through the Canada and the U.S. It's crazy. I wonder what drives these birds to know where they're going. They, it's some incredible some migrations. The, yeah, outside of game species, when I do a, a little bit of work with terns and other seabirds and uh, Arctic terns, they were doing a study on Arctic terns in Greenland that were nesting in Greenland. And they put these little transmitters on them that basically they record daylight. And so by, based on when the sun rises and sets, you know exactly where the bird is in mm -hmm. the world. And so they take these things and look and they go off of Greenland and out into the Atlantic and wander around. And they end up eventually down at the Weddell Sea off the coast of Antarctica. Hmm. And they spend the the our winter, their summer, in Antarctica, and then they make this beeline back up in the next yeah you know, the next spring. They're back in Greenland. That's strange. It's amazing. I mean, mm -hmm. miles and miles and miles. Yeah, uh, basically one one pole to the next. Yeah, across uh, wide open sea uh, too. Mm -hmm. Yep, and yeah, they, animals have some amazing uh, ability to navigate. Oh, one of the one of the coolest critters that everybody has watch are the sharks the great white sharks mm -hmm. where they're putting the transmitters on them and uh mary lee the one shark wandered around and you would see her she was in jacksonville florida and she takes off and the next two days later she's in bermuda you know across mm -hmm. the completely open ocean somehow and went and ex actually pinned you know how do you do that and yeah. i got you couldn't you know, we couldn't do that oh, in a million no. years. no way so, i honestly did not nowhere near as cool as a shark but uh monarch butterflies are pretty cool too mm -hmm. i don't know how you were uh, hatched out of an egg as a caterpillar in kentucky become a butterfly five times before you can actually live long enough to make it anywhere yeah. because it's a fifth instar so the yeah. fifth monarch is actually the one that makes the trip yeah. so you have been reproduced five times and then all of a sudden you, you find your way to mexico to this one spot to re to, to whatever they do there right 
pretty pretty incredible critters. Yeah, a lot of animals are. It's wild. But yeah, migratory birds, of course, I mean, they're migratory, so that's pretty much everything you deal with. And, and people, and people you know, a lot of times, I used to teach a class in uh, conservation and wildlife management, and the students, I was like, I ask them, what are... Ask them, tell me, what are the five species, or what, what bird species in Kentucky are not migratory? Can I, I guess? I mean, I guess I could, there's only five? Well, there's less than five. I think five, five is too many. I think there's four. There are non, non-migratory? There are four non-migratory birds in the state of Kentucky. Wild turkey. Wild turkey is the, a very good one. That's the easiest one. Yeah. I'm going to guess that, uh, well, what are the other ground-dwelling? Snipe? Well, you, snipe? Snipe is migratory. They nest in. I'm going to make myself look at it. You're, you're close. I would think about other game birds. Grouse. Grouse. Quail. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So I've got three. That's, that's three. There's only three. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I don't know. I, I guess I should have I, 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 I wanted to say five, but uh, there's, there's actually only that's three. That's only three. So cardinals, blue jays. All migratory. All considered migratory. Huh. Well, they don't go as far, though, do they? It depends. I mean, yeah, we, it, we don't have as much information on their movements maybe as some others but yes some likely they, don't go anywhere yeah right? some don't but some sometimes you know your feeders you'll like oh there's cardinals here but that you all can't year but, yeah, you've month. got replacement birds that came from up north that are here now that you know that your birds went south oh, my bad that's my See, I'm not the only one. I, I, I fought a lead. Dogging me on it now, look. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 uh, I'm just thankful it's not me. I'll do it eventually. I'm sure I'll do it again in like five to eight minutes. <laughs> five to eight. I'm going to look at the time. Okay. Yeah, time me because I'm sure I'll do it again. The, uh, and it, the So quail aren't your area, are they? No, they're not. Okay. I was going to say, I did. I did. I have flushed two cubbies of quail in Shelby and Franklin County within the Good. last few months. Yeah. I thought it was there. One of them was on my road. But uh, a lot of this is tall, grassy area. Another one was on uh, the farm down there on Elkhorn that you know of. Mm-hmm. Flushed it right out in the middle of that big field. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I was actually uh, driving to go get a, a deer. I shot a doe, and I was driving my truck through the field, and phew, right there. One time I was riding a motorcycle growing up on an abandoned distillery near Bardstown and flushed a covey of quail. Wrecked my motorcycle and burnt the fire out of my leg. <laughs> it scared the living fire out of me. It just, I ran right into them. They flushed. I was like, oh, let, let go of the handlebars, went over and heard, and, oh, burnt my leg terrible on the muffler. I only had, oh, you burnt it that way. I was thinking road rash for some No, reason. no, on the muffler. Yeah, I burned my leg pretty bad on the exhaust before, too. I wrecked my motorcycle one time. And it was one of those stupid wrecks. You know, there's 50 people standing around and I'm just coming to a stop. I'm on the front brake and then I get in some gravel and, you know, wreck going two miles an hour and just feel like a complete fool. Well, oh, it's going uh, fairly fast. I mean, they just completely uh, I mean, I never rode a motorcycle. <laughs> it's probably a good idea. This was a kind of a cheapie and the, the, the design of the exhaust went kind of right up under the seat. So if you laid her over at all, it'd burn the inside of your, uh, Thighs. So, uh, well, this isn't this isn't a motorcycle podcast. This is a wildlife podcast. I want to get back. I only got two other bullet points here related to waterfowl, and then, well, actually, I got a couple other things in my mind. I don't know if Lee has anything. But I, I do. One thing I wanted for that's a major change this year that that John would explain to to our listeners is the fact that we no longer have any goose zones, and um, that may. When people look at the guide and look at the, the waterfowl page under uh, on the website, maybe a little like, what happened to all the goose zones? Well, could you explain the, the what happened there? Charlie? Well, explain what they are first, because I don't necessarily understand. Like I said, I'm not a waterfowler. We, we, again, because of migratory birds, we had certain ways that we managed populations. And geese used to be this incredibly contentious, valuable resource. 
many people here will remember the old days at Ballard in Western Kentucky when geese came, these migrants came, and and uh, there was a lot of there were areas that you could identify where birds from the Mississippi Valley population birds came or the birds from Southern James Bay came. And so we drew these lines on the map and said, this is a Southern James Bay area and this is a area for Mississippi Valley birds. And so we had different seasons and bag limits and all those things trying to protect all these little individual populations. Uh -huh. And then we had things like Cave Run Lake around Cave Run Lake. We had Northeast Goose Zone where we were introducing Canada, the resident Canada geese, and we wanted to make sure that they didn't get over-harvested okay. because they were new and starting. And, and so we had all these different lines on the map and said, this is a zone, and here's a set of rules associated with this. And it was horribly complicated and a big mess. Hmm. And with geese, populations are doing so well across the board. Our resident bird numbers are up. The number of resident geese and and, and this flyway is well over a million birds. The uh, Southern James Bay and MVP populations, we have less concerns than we've ever had. And so, uh, by and large, we, there's just no need biologically to have these zones. Mm -hmm. And so, why burden our hunters with having to know, okay, County X is, mm -hmm. what zone is it, and what, how do I hunt? Yeah. So, we've basically done away with all those zones this year. There's no, no special rules other than you can't hunt on Cave Run Lake. It's mm -hmm. still closed. It's still a refuge. There's area, still yes. a map uh, of that. But if, otherwise, the rest of the state, hunt geese as you will. There's mm -hmm. one statewide season on geese. Mm -hmm. yes. Everything is under statewide regulation now. Okay. It makes sense. It makes and sense the, easy. And the season is uh, from Thanksgiving Day through February 15th. It's a good so long season. It is a very long For geese. Season. Yes. Different than ducks, but geese are, for whether it be Canada geese, speckle bellies, or uh, snow geese, that's the season. And so it's an increase of two weeks from a couple of years yeah, ago, correct? We, we've added some, some days. We come close to, we're pretty close to 107 days. The maximum number of days you can hunt any migratory birds in this country is 107 days. And so we, we're pretty close to that upper level threshold now with Canada geese. Hmm. Um, if I want to, because I'm when I go hunt geese this year, or waterfowl, whatever waterfowl it is, what do I need? You, you need your, first of all, you need your hunting license. You need a migratory bird uh, permit. Basically, Kentucky what, migratory what, game bird permit. Which yeah, is also waterfowl. needed for dove, correct? Yeah, mm -hmm. Same one you yes. use for dove. And then you need a federal duck stamp. Okay. And the federal duck stamp, the, the biggest citation our officers write is people buy that duck stamp and they don't sign it. You must sign your name across the face of the okay. stamp, so that we can't go. We can't go and Lee goes today, and then let me hand off you know the stamp to you. Mm -hmm. That money from that stamp is used almost a hundred percent for buying national wildlife refuges and things like that. So it is a very, very, very valuable uh, mm -hmm. bit of money, and it. it a lot of our national wildlife refuges have been purchased with that federal duck stamp over the years. And uh, the hip survey, correct? Absolutely. <laughs> so if I bought my sportsman's, which I did, I already have my hunting license and my migratory. You have everything but the federal duck stamp, okay. and you need to, but you still need to do hip. Okay, oh, I did that. For, uh, for okay, and the hip, the hip is basically it allows us to f figure out how many birds uh, people are taking, how many hunters we have, how many birds are harvesting. And it's a, it's an incredibly valuable tool, and uh, so it's used. And it's not, people think, well, it asked me I sh how many doves I shot, and I put the wrong number down, well, so it's, it's an wrong. estimate. I mean, it's yeah. like a, it's a, it says 31 uh -huh. plus. Right. So. But it, all that does, it, it doesn't use that number at all. It just says, 
you, if you said 31 plus, say it classifies you. You are a dove hunter and you are a high level dove hunter. Okay. And so the service then goes through that list of names and says, Lee, Lee went but didn't shoot any. You went and shot 31. So I'm much you're, better than Lee. You're better than says. Lee. Yes. <laughs> and what it does is it samples you two at a different rate. Okay. And so the, it goes through one in every hundred people in Lee's category gets a, a survey from the Fish and Wildlife Service. I got one last year. And, and we'll ask you to keep a journal every day you hunt where you'll write down every detail of what you do. Okay. Whereas in your, with you, you as a super hunter, maybe one in 20 of you I will like get this. sampled. I like this. Uh, and so you'll have to, you know, you'll, there's a higher rate. The more birds you kill, the higher likelihood. So all it does is classify you, stratify you, so that when we send out surveys to get the actual information we use, that we're not just sending it to a million people who who didn't really go or didn't really try or did whatever. So we're we're trying to, to stratify the the people we sample. So the way it was explained to me, and I can't remember who told me this. But no, you know, first of all, I actually talked to one of our game wardens the other day at a dove field. I saw him; he was out checking a dove field, and so I kind of started just asking him questions. And I asked him if the hip survey was what he got most people on. He said, "You know what? Last year I got a lot more. This year it seemed like everybody was kind of." Falling into line, everybody kind of knew what to do, and he said he just gave out warnings for it the first year as well. Yep. So, and we, I mean, we've 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 uh, first couple of years warning, and the officers actually carried with them a little business card that they could hand to hunters, and it had a whatever a QR code on the back they could scan, scan. and it took you right to the website, and you could do it. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's important. It was not done as a way to be able to cite people. Yeah. It was done as a way to gather this information. Well, the, good information. The story, the story that was told to me was that these were questions that had been being asked, but uh, a lot of times the people working the counter at Walmart or wherever you were buying your hunting and fishing license, you know, they were in a hurry. They obviously had other customers to get to, so they were just kind of clicking through without and, answering the question. And, exactly and they learned. They learned that basically by saying, did you hunt migratory words last year? If you said no, you didn't get, did you hunt doves? Did you hunt rails? Did you, all those, none of those questions came up. Yeah. So they just automatically were answering no for everybody. And, and so what the Fish and Wildlife Service was having to do was sample everybody. Yeah. Looking, trying to find the migratory. And then you know, all of our uh, sportsmen's licenses, all of our senior disabled licenses, they were trying to find dove hunters and, and woodcock hunters and yeah. things in that giant sample of people who weren't interested. So we, we tried to narrow it down. Now, if you want to hunt migratory birds, you've got to just go online and take the couple minutes to do it. I mean, it, it takes all of it. It takes less than five minutes. Yeah. If I only hunted dove last year, so I only had to fill out, I just hit zero for everything. It other takes than, around a minute. Yeah, yeah. maybe less. The longest part is typing your name in mm -hmm. into the, the login yeah. screen. My profile. Yeah. So it's easy. The purpose of it was to get better info. Yeah. And like you said, the survey stuff, I hadn't actually realized that before. Um, that's all I had. Okay. I have one more, Chase. If you I, don't I do too, actually do. You go, you go. Well, that's, um, you brought something up, John, to me the other day about Ohio River waterfowling, and there's a lot of confusion out there about the rules. Could you explain to our listeners what's going on? It's probably one of my most frequent calls and questions. If you hunt on the Ohio River and you are adjacent to either Ohio or Indiana, then you are allowed to hunt anywhere on the main stem of the river under your home license. So if basically, if you are on the Ohio side of the river, but you have a Kentucky license, it's Kentucky season, you follow Kentucky's rules, that's okay. Mm -hmm. As long as your boat is in the river and you're floating and you're doing, 
that you're you're able to hunt anywhere on the river. So you don't have to worry about okay, is there a weird state line here somewhere? Is you know, hunt on the main part of the river. Now, if you go up a tributary, that's off the table. Mm -hmm. If you get out on the bank and stand on the bank, that's off the table. So, so. it's very similar to the fishing rigs. Yeah, very, other than fishing, you can stand on the bank. Yeah, yes. fishing allows you to stand on the bank, but waterfowl does not allow you to stand on the bank. That makes uh, sense. So, but it, it's it's again a nice reciprocal agreement. Unfortunately, we don't have that agreement with Illinois, uh, which has the most confusing state lines. You know, most for the most part, Indiana, Ohio, it's not a big deal. It actually benefits their hunters more than it does ours. Mm -hmm. But in Illinois, the, the lines go up and down and through the middle of the river and snake. And it's the crazy, some of the, around yeah, Western Kentucky, there's some, some horrible places where it goes back and forth across the river. Uh, we are working with their, with their agency, but it's, uh, it's a challenge to get all attorneys from both sides 100% yeah. on board. That makes sense. And what about during floodwaters? That's another, again, another part of the question we get a lot. You can, when the river floods, you can drive your boat across somebody's farm field. As long as it's, uh, you know, the, the, it's underwater, your boat's floating, you can drive your boat across their farm field. You can hunt, if that's all flooded, on their, above their property, mm -hmm. except that you cannot touch their property. Yeah, so. And so if you drop an anchor, if you drop a decoy that has an anchor, if you grab hold of a tree... To tie off to a tree, then any of those things make make you touching the bottom of yeah. that property. Okay. So uh, it's basically it's that's where the you know people think well I can navigate across their property so I should be able to hunt, and that's not the case. Again, if you if you are just a hundred percent drifting and not touching the bottom, then yes, I guess in theory that's okay. But the chances are that you're going to hit bottom. You're going to, how are you going to float with a bunch of decoys? Mm -hmm. And so you're going to end up getting tangled up in a tree or something like that. So at some point, you're probably going to be breaking the law or yeah. by trespassing on the property. So, so if you don't know what's down there on that property yeah. either. I mean, there yeah. could be a fence row or something. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, you're running a lot of risk if yeah. you do that. So uh, for the most part, we tell people just hunt on the main the main part of the river. Yeah. But, you know, there, are, there was a lot of questions kind of recently about where is, you know, if I'm in the river, people, they say the landowner owns all the way to the middle of the river. Uh -huh. And that may be the case, but the reality for hunting purposes, as long as you're in the main part of the river, you can anchor, you can tie off, your decoys can be on the bottom. Yeah. It's just once you cross that line outside of the main channel of the river up, if that's where you start you can't touch bottom. I'd say there's some common sense that comes into that yeah, somewhere. Is. Is. The only other thing I had specifically to waterfowl for you, and somebody asked me to ask this, is uh, expectations for the season. I think uh, you know we get. I think I have high expectations. I think we're going. We've had some really interesting early cold up in some of the northern areas. Mm -hmm. uh, the birds are moving maybe more than already than we've seen mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Uh, we we, you know, the, again the numbers are still high. I still am hopeful. But ultimately, our duck season is driven by weather. Mm -hmm. And if it gets cold and the birds push and, you know, they're here and we have a good time, uh, if, if the weather is warm and sunny and, and whatever, we may not have it. So it mm -hmm. really is so weather-driven for us. But uh, I, I have I have good feelings about this year. I think uh, a lot of places people have already been seeing birds and having a good time. Yeah. Well, this, un this cool snap we've had can't help. Yeah. Can't. Do anything but help, rather. Yeah. Than it's, it's, again, there were, 
This time last year, I think it was in the seventies for you know this weather. I'm telling you, it's been so up and down lately. Mm-hmm. It was super hot, and then it got dropped off, and it was hard frost. Yesterday it was seventy again. <laughs> Today it's raining. Yeah, yeah. It's cooling off. So my, my counterpart in Minnesota was going early part of October was going hunting, and everything up there was frozen solid. Yeah, that they had already had snow. They'd already had. It's like this is the earliest he ever remembered having snow and that much cold. And they were going up into Canada and having the same same issues. So uh, there's been some early early cold. That's more birds for us, correct? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Should be. You know, in a lot of cases, we you know birds come through, and then we may get birds coming back north. It just depends on. You know, and lots of people think that they, the birds don't get here until late, late, late. But a lot of cases, people are convinced, well, the mallards aren't here yet. But if you look at the migration maps, they've already been through here. Mm-hmm. That they, they were actually, they, the, what they're cut, where we're getting is the birds bouncing back up, starting their northward migration. Hmm. Hmm. And snowpack in the north plays a big difference. It does. We're it better. does. But, and, but again, there's a lot of things that play into it. And uh, we're, we're, I mean, if it's really warm up north, geese are bigger, more impacted by snowpack. Uh, than than anything else geese like last year we had a push of those migrant geese that came in because there was so much snow uh in january up in in wisconsin and places like that illinois and so we got a lot more geese than we'd had it's kind of cool i guess most of our our biologists or program coordinators when they're thinking about the species they manage they're thinking about it on a much more local level you're having to think about what's going on in this hemisphere absolutely Mm -hmm. and it it, it all impacts what Now, people, people will call me and say, I used to have ducks on my property and I don't anymore. Can you tell me what happened? And I'm like, something changed. <laughs> you know, and, and the reality with migratory birds, these birds can cover huge distances. And, and now Missouri has more property, more places for birds to go. Illinois has more places. We have more places. Yeah. And so while we are, have pretty high numbers of ducks, there's so many more pieces of habitat out there. Uh, that the birds are spread out a little bit more. Yeah. I know Louisiana hunters are very upset with, uh, in a lot of cases, because their duck numbers are down in some cases because the birds are not having to go that far anymore. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're running into problems with, you know, they're seeing fewer and fewer birds. And so, it, but it's just, there are more places up here to, yeah. to, for them to stop. So they're seeing fewer, but somewhere else, somebody's seeing more. And, exactly. and there's, there's more food now on the landscape with no-till and things of that nature. Is that true? No-till was, was the reason geese don't come to Kentucky anymore. I mean, yeah. no-till changed, what, changed what geese do. Yeah, because they used to, the minute they harvested, they plowed it up as bare dirt there's nothing left there for geese. And so once you went to no-till, there's still food available in that field. And so they just didn't have to come as south as much as they used to. Hmm. I'm going to run through some of these questions I got. If you guys don't care, and basically these could be anything. Mm-hmm. It might be something I'm no expert on almost anything at all. So if, if Well, I'm a talented liar, as you well know, so we'll yeah. make something up. I just kind of give the best, uh, you know, my best guess. And I did call Gabe earlier and talk to him a little bit. So I'm just going to run down through these. Um, let's see how to apply to bear hunt in Kentucky slash public land to bear slash sandhill crane hunt in Kentucky. Well, the bear hunt, you don't have to apply for. You just buy a $30 bear permit over the counter and there's a quota. I think the quota is 15 bears now on the different seasons. It used to be 10. I think it got bumped up to 15. It, I'm pretty sure that's right. But you don't actually have to One apply. One of the quotas is filled, I think, for archery. Oh yeah. Well, they it was filled the first day basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the modern firearm season runs the same as our muzzleloader season. 
late muzzleloader in December. So that's the one that I've I've gone and hunted in the past. But no no application. You buy a thirty dollar permit over the counter, and there's a bear zone in Kentucky, and you can hunt. Uh, you might want to check on the different public lands, but you can hunt any private land within that bear zone. I think it's like a sixteen county bear zone now. And then Sandhill, we do have the guy here for that one. Is there public land to Sandhill Crane Hunt? It's it's challenging to find public land. That the around Barren River Lake, some of our W Barren River WMA, there have been birds killed there. The problem is with with sandhills, they are so wary mm -hmm. that the first time you shoot them, they don't come back. Yeah. So we might have one day of opportunity on that WMA. People get lucky, get get a bird, and then they might not ever come back there. So most of the hunting opportunity for sandhills is on private land. This other person here asked. Uh... I'm going to skip one. Best places to Sandhill Crane Hunt. So just around, in general. Around Barren River. The two main places where people would hunt would be around Barren River Lake and around Cecilia, Kentucky. And we do now have a new um, no-hunt zone in Green River Lake, correct? Yeah, we, we do. We have a part of Green River Lake is now closed. We've had a roost the last couple winters that's been there for a little bit of time and then left. We're afraid that maybe they got disturbed. And so... This population of cranes is expanding so rapidly. We've had birds at Taylorsville. We've had birds at Rough River. We've had birds at uh, Cumberland. Cumberland. We've had, and so I love it when they go over and I'm smallmouth fishing. That's yeah, great. Yeah, they, we 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 expect that uh, before it's all over with, we'll have a number of roosts around the around the state. Uh, but for right now, Barron River and Cecilia are the two main places. Uh, and that refuge area in Green River is in the very headwaters of the lake. In an area where the duck blinds traditionally have been yeah. in, in the WMA. So, okay. no sandhill crane hunting there. We're just trying to let them roost in there, <clears throat> sit in there at night, so that they don't get disturbed while they're roosting and that they will hopefully spend the winter there and then be ex available to either bird watchers or hunters out on the fields around there. I was uh, supposed to put in for the sandhill quota hunt and I forgot to, and I'm in trouble with several people because I didn't. But I would, Kyle Tipton was one person who told me to put in, and we actually had a spot we were going to try in Shelby County where there's been a population, I think, the last two years. Awesome. I saw about 40 or 50 birds down there last year. I'm wanting to say it was in March. Does that make sense? It was either February or March. February, yeah, February, March is really late, yeah. starting to be really, but it could certainly, February is more likely, but by March, most of the birds have come through and gone north. I remember what I was doing before I saw them, and I did it on the second Sunday in February and in March. I just can't remember yeah. which one of those two Sundays it was. That's outside the season dates. Yeah. So that would be after the season is closed. Yeah. Uh, so, but it, it, you, know, you just never know. I think we're going to see things change enough that there's going to be opportunity. We, we had, we've had birds killed in Woodford County. We've had birds killed in other parts of the state. Mm -hmm. So there, you know, there's no telling where they might be. Some of the satellite transmitter birds we've been following for they're, they're showing up in places all over the state that we had no idea there were cranes. Yeah. This other one, uh, I'm just kind of grouping these questions by, by category. Sandhill crane hunting tips. I don't even know if that's something you can really do. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's biggest tip is to find where the birds are. Yeah. They, they want to, if you find them in the field the day before, they're likely coming back the next day. So find where they are that day, find the landowner, find a way to get permission to hunt on that property and then be there the next morning when they come back. So drive around, do whatever you got to do to locate scout, the birds. Scout, scout, yeah. scout, scout. I mean, it is a you can they if they you can set up all, a million decoys in a field they don't want to come to, and they aren't coming. Yeah, yeah. You got to be in somewhere where they want to go. All right. Oh yeah. So basically, just find the birds. That's yeah. the number one thing. Let's see another question here. Rut report. 
Uh, rut report. Let's see. It's they're talking about deer hunting. Of course, mm-hmm. it's almost. Uh, I mean, it's almost that time. The from what I've seen, being in the field, pre ruts definitely kicking up. Bucks are making scrapes. I've seen bucks sparring. Um, it's getting. It's moving in that direction. But the rut's not here because I don't think those are in heat yet. And that's what really triggers the rut. So you're getting all these bucks that are getting territorial. They're mm-hmm. they're practicing up. They're getting a little bit rowdy. But until does go in heat and they have that estrus in the air and they're smelling it and they're really running around nose to the ground. You know how bucks get their drooling, mouth open, just running. They don't even know where they're going. They're just going. I mean, that's not here yet. But it's probably about a week and a half, two weeks away. We're, we're I'd say we're close. Yeah. Because last year it was this week coming up that my, where I hunted was where they were crazy. I usually think November 7th. Uh, it's usually the week before gun season, and yep. it's early November. I, I'm kicking myself for not having a buck tag right now because I've seen some buck activity on the pickup. But at the same time, I mean, it, when the rut's in, if you've got a doe in the field in front of you and a buck comes out, that doe isn't going to be able to stand there and eat without that buck hounding her. Right. And right now the bucks aren't necessarily yeah. – on those does yet so coming up and it's coming quick i did talk to gabe i'm going to go through these questions and i'll get to what gabe told me um let's see hunting in heavy winds i don't know what kind of hunting i'm going to assume deer because that's what most people i mean i'm not sure how it affects waterfowl but hunting in heavy winds i mean deer are still out there they still got to move and you can honestly play that heavy wind to your advantage because you can use it to cover your sound you can you have a definite idea of where your scent's going there's no question about where's my scent going so you can play it a little bit safer as far as that go goes. And this time of year, deer is still going to want to move. If the wind's blowing hard, it's not going to keep that buck from getting up and freshening his scrape line because he's just mm-hmm. going to have to do it. So I would hunt poorer conditions right now than I would probably hunt in September. Yeah. But, I, would, um, I would say the wind is is a plus for me because I've been to lived in a number of states before I came to Kentucky, and there's nowhere I've ever been that the wind goes around in circles more than when I sit in a deer stand here mm-hmm. in Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, like every time it seems I get in the stand, it goes 360 mm-hmm. degrees at some point during the hunt. And oh, yeah, yeah I, I, I cherish a strong wind because at least that, that way you it's know one it's direction. Coming, no coming doubt. from one direction. Yeah, that, that's a good thing about it. A strong wind means you can, I don't know if he's talking about uh, the opening day of muzzleloader season we had strong where it was 40, 50 miles an hour. I was in the woods that day, literally heard two trees fall. Like when I was out there in the woods, probably old ash trees or something. It's still not a good. So I wouldn't want to be in a deer stand in a forty mile an hour wind. What does strong wind do to waterfowl hunting? It, does uh, it put them down? No, they move. They move around during during strong wind. Uh, it, it changes how you you better shoot because the you when the birds are close, that first shot they're close, but the second shot they, they're not. They're not. I mean, it can go. The birds can go from fifteen yards to forty yards in half a second. When they flare and that wind hits them, they're out of there. So you better make the, your first strike count. Uh, but they move around. To, again, depending on the species, some species move more when the wind blows. The the, the divers and the sea ducks and things like that are, you know, they're used to wind and all that. They don't mind it nearly as much. Hmm. Uh-oh. That is uh, Brooks giving a phone call. Michael Gray. <laughs> I'm just going to let this one go. <laughs> What's up, Michael? <laughs> we, could, we, could, we could get him on the podcast real quick. I'm just going to hit ignore, actually. I probably shouldn't do that. Oh, well. Anyway, thanks, Michael Gray, for that. Um, let me look here. I'm just going to run through these. These can be pretty quick. We've already eaten up some good amount of time. So, What's your, what's your go-to call for coyotes, and how long do you stay on a set? Uh, it just depends on the time of the year. Coyotes do different things. I mean, sometimes it's mating season. Sometimes they're fattening up, getting ready for winter, or it is winter and their food is scarce, so they're having a hard time. Sometimes they just had pups and there's 
you know, they're being responsive to that kind of a call. So it kind of depends on the time of year. You probably stay on the set half an hour, 45 minutes. Longest I've ever stayed on a set was an hour and 20 without killing one. You know, typically I give up. Before that, uh, I always start off with a, a coyote howl or some kind of vocal to make the coyotes more comfortable. They think there's a coyote in that area. Sometimes they'll howl back and you can actually have them located. And then occasionally you have to switch your setup because if you're setting up to shoot coyotes in this direction you hear one sound off over behind you, then you can make a, a call real quick and change up. So start off with the howl. If it's a time of year that I think they're going to be hungry, they're looking for food, I'll go into some kind of a critter distress, a rabbit or squirrel or woodpecker or fawn or something like that. Run that for about 25-30 minutes off and on because for some reason coyotes like breaks. If it's a constant sound, they seem disinterested, but if it's a break and then it comes back, it kind of gets them. Then after that, I'll usually go to some growls or some uh, coyote distress noises because I'm going to get a little bit more into this than I planned on. Coyotes are... Uh, they're a community animal. Like they, I mean, they actually live in packs, and they're—it's almost like dogs. You know what I mean? If they hear another coyote in distress, they might go to it to try to help it out, or just out of curiosity. If they hear another coyote howl, they might go to it because they're—I mean—they're social animals. You know what I mean? And they also mate, so mating calls work during that time of year. And they also have to eat, so prey calls work. I just use a variety of calls based on whatever time of year it is and whatever I think is going to work. Let's see what's next. Hunting heavy winds, sandhill crane, coyote hunting, out of state deer hunting. If it's JB, crow hunting on public land, where are the hot spots? That's a darn good question. I, I unfortunately probably don't have a great answer for you uh, for where the best public land hunt, hunting spots are. Uh, again, where where you find crows i mean yeah again crows being migratory they show up in groups and the yeah. biggest group of crows i think i've ever seen was in kind of southeastern kentucky uh one time uh but you know you just have to go find where the birds are i know that around uh probably the if i were going to send somebody one place it would be at slews henderson area mm -hmm. i think there's a few people that hunt crows in that part of the uh, world i think that you could probably have luck hunting crows almost anywhere yeah i've called them i've called a ton of crows in in shelby county and franklin mm -hmm. county and in madison county norm did great on this yeah. you know yeah it can, it can be anywhere again shelby county. you can find some kind of concentration of uh, crows it's if you ever get in a spot where they you're in a huge group of them, it can be just a spectacular thing to see several hundred birds come to oh, you. Oh, and calling them is a lot of fun, yeah, too. I it mean, is. I remember the first time I ever called crows. I didn't even do it intentionally. I just had my coyote call, and it had crow calls on it, you know, like a gaggle or whatever it's called. And I uh, set it outside, and I hit it, and I didn't know what to expect. And next thing I know, I've got crows flocking from everywhere. There's like 70 crows up there. And it, was, it, it reminded me of the Wizard of Oz when all the... The, the flying monkeys swarm. Mm -hmm. sort of I look saw like. three or four gang up on a giant great orn howl one time in central Kentucky WMA. I never huh. will forget that. And they huh. chased him into a, a big cedar tree. Huh. And you could see his little cat, you know, looking at I was like, such a big bird, but the crows beat you up. I mean, they were. You're a hawk or an owl. You get beat up by crows a lot. Mm -hmm. Man, you know, it's weird. This is completely unrelated. I've got a turkey that probably weighs 40 pounds, a domestic turkey. I've got a bunch of chickens and a rooster, too. And the smallest, scraggly-looking chicken I have, probably about the size of this Gatorade bottle here, beats up that turkey. And that turkey will tuck and run when that chicken starts getting close. <laughs> My dog weighs like 33 pounds. He's a beagle. He's terrified of that little bitty chicken. I'm not. I, I think birds have this mentality where it's not about the size; it's just the attitude. Mm -hmm. And they have their quick in and out. The big bird can't maneuver the way they can, and 
so they can jump in and out and hit and yeah they don't have a don't have a chance have you ever seen that video of that uh red tail and that bald eagle uh i don't know that i have but it's something if somebody's listening it's worth getting on youtube it's a red hell red tail and a bald eagle and i guess the eagle's flying and this is something to look up on youtube and the red tail comes in behind it and gets real close to it and you see that eagle kind of look over his shoulder and see that red tail he barrel rolls in the air and talons out trying to grab that red tail and you see the red tail put on the brakes and just stop all of a sudden and the eagle rolls back over and it's crazy how maneuverable some of those birds can be it's but amazing crows are supposed to be some of the smartest yeah they are birds too so i'm sure, I'm sure lots of people used to keep them as pets would take them out of a nest or something keep, kind of, not legal these days but in the old days it was and they could teach them to talk and some of those things sounds like a halloweenish type <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, a, a raven yeah. might be more along those lines. So. How appropriate. We don't have too many ravens in Kentucky. Let's see. I'm just going to, so there's only really two more topics that people ask me about here. Um, and a lot of it's deer hunting. They want to know about deer hunting. And the other one would be trapping. Uh, so real quick, I did talk to Gabe Jenkins on the phone earlier, who is your equivalent in yep. the deer and elk uh, department. He's the deer and elk program coordinator. And he's been on the podcast before, mostly to talk about regs and things like that. But uh, I will tell you what he told me. He said he's hearing uh, from a lot of people in this region of Kentucky, so the, center, the bluegrass region is what I would call it, that uh, they aren't seeing quite as much as they, they would expect. And uh, apparently we have an extremely good mass crop this year. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the deer are holding up in the woods. So if you're hunting over a cornfield or something like that, there's a good chance those deer aren't even interested in the corn right now because those acorns are in the woods. So uh, he suggests, and I completely agreed with this, Try to find those mass crops if you if you can right now. There's a we had a really good uh, mass crop this year, so locate those oaks in the uh, in the woods and hunt that area, and you should have some deer coming in there and hitting them. If they don't have to break the woods to eat, they aren't going to, especially mm-hmm. when their favorite food in the world is right there in the woods. So, mm-hmm. just a second. Um, so that is uh, one of the things he told me. Concentrate on the acorns. He said ninety no. 75% of our harvest uh, take cl- take place during modern gun season. And he said our harvest each year is extremely dependent on the weather. Because it's only a two-week, three-weekend mm-hmm. thing. So if we have a bad spell of weather that comes through for two weeks, it significantly impacts our total harvest for the state. Um, hunt acorns. Hunt scrapes. Don't be afraid to rattle and grunt right now right now, because the deer are being territorial and they are being responsive to those uh, those techniques. I've seen it myself. Like I said, wishing I had a buck tag because it's my favorite time to hunt deer. My favorite time is uh, before gun season. The two weeks leading up to gun season when you can rattle them in. All-time favorite. And then uh, he said in two weeks, all that's going to go out the window. You're going to want to look for travel corridors, high traffic areas, and just hunt, hunt the does because that's what the bucks are going to be doing too. So that's, that's basically what I got from, from him is that right now, mass crops, uh, scrape lines, things like that in two weeks, forget it, hunt, hunt travel corridors and high traffic areas because those bucks are going to be cruising. So when gun season comes in, basically, which is a little less than two weeks away. God, I had planned this year on taking the week off before gun season, yeah. bow hunting every single day and had forgotten the national, I compete with retrievers and the national championship is here in Kentucky. Huh. Uh, in that week. Oh. So I'll be at that. But I've, I've been, for all year, I've been thinking I'm taking that week off and I'm going to be hunting and bow hunting every day that week. I would love to. I, I'm probably going to take some time off and go back out of state. I did get an Indiana license and tag and 
like I said, I'm kicking myself for tagging out in Kentucky, and I'm very happy with the deer I took. The thing is, I, I enjoy deer hunting in mid-October to the first day of gun season so much more. I mean, it's my favorite time by far to be out there, but I also enjoy bow hunting so much that I can't not be out there from mm -hmm. September 1 through then. So I go and I sit and I sit and I sit, and if I kill something early, which I'm obviously going to do if I get the opportunity, then I'm sitting on the sidelines. So this year I said, I'm not sitting on the sidelines anymore. I'm going to Indiana. Me and a buddy packed up the truck last Friday morning, about 3 a.m., headed up there to public land and uh, hunted for a day and a half. And I don't know if you've ever deer hunted public land with a bow out of state, but it's tough, you know, because you've never seen the ground before. First day we moved a whole lot, which was a mistake, because when you're moving, you're doing something wrong with a bow in your hand. With a rifle, it's okay. But um, we found a lot of good sign, kind of located some bucks, went back the next morning, and he shot a pretty good nine-pointer which was, I mean, great. He probably shot a deer on that second morning we were there that a lot of people have been hunting the WMA for all year. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Which, I mean, I kind of feel bad, but it's part of the technique. I mean, went out there and found the scrapes and hunted the woods where the sign was and rattled that buck in. So kind of the same thing that's happening here. Right spot at the right time is all you know so what, important. You know what's cool? Is uh, he shot that deer, and I don't, I don't know if either one of you guys have Instagram or anything like that, but I do, and... Uh, I put a picture of the deer he took up and some guy from Indiana sent me a message that he had trail cam pictures of it and he dropped a dot on the map. He said, this is where I got trail cam pictures of it. And he got the trail cam pictures on private land across the road from the WMA. And it was probably a third of a mile, but I mean, somehow some guy recognized that deer and he said, Oh, I know that deer. He sent me the trail cam pictures and I'm, I'm going to go back up there, take off a day or so from work and their gun season opens up November 17th. So I've got until then, because basically opening day of gun season is the last day of bow, bow season for me. I know it's not in reality, but for me, it's like, that's when I need to have that buck is by then. Because after that, I mean, it just all drops off. In my opinion, that's just my opinion. So, the world changes for sure. Yeah, the orange army hits the woods. I mean, if I still had a buck tag during gun season, I would be out there with my bow. It's just personal preference. But after the rut... And after a lot of deer have been taken, like like Gabe said, 75% of the harvest occur during modern gun season. So you're looking at a significantly less amount of deer in the woods. Plus, they're a little bit more skittish. They aren't necessarily up and moving like they were before. So I personally would just like to have it done before that day comes. So you'll find me in Indiana again between now and November 17th. Let's see. What else do we got? Oh, yeah. Trapping. Either one of you guys ever trapped before? I have a little. When bit. I was young. Yeah. yeah. How did you guys do it? Uh Go ahead, Lee. Um, the little Boy Scout traps we learned that were horribly ineffective. Like we finally <laughs> got one using about, saplings and, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. The, you're talking about the real uh, primitive trapping type yes, deal. That's why I learned it in Boy Scouts. Digging holes and putting a layer of fa mm -hmm. false uh, ground over and it. using a sapling and the yeah. sling of the catch. Got one little baby rabbit one time. That's all we did. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun to learn. I never did it that way. I spent a year kind of post-grad school working for a Department of Ag and Wildlife Services trapping trap beavers a lot in that time period. So yeah. it was, uh, it's, it's fun and interesting and a lot of, uh, a lot of work and, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it can be, I, I always really enjoyed it because it's like Christmas every time you go check. Your That's trap. what other you know, people tell me You're too. just, you know, that anticipation of what mm -hmm. is there when you ground that corner and, 
oh, there's a critter there, or nope, it hasn't yeah. been moving. You're, t it's you, you thinking through the process. It's just a really neat. And yeah. I, I, love I do, it. I do kind of like the thinking through the process. See, this guy specifically asked about uh, trapping coyotes and predators, yeah. which is the only kind of trapping I've done was for coyotes, and it was uh, last year on the farm that I live on. I only trapped two tree lines, right, for coyotes, and I only set snares. And it's still a lot of work. Even though I was hunting on the home property that I live on, it's still, you got to be out there every single day. So you're almost dedicating, you know, half an hour to an hour of every day you have those traps out, which doesn't seem like a lot until you got to start doing it. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that, you know, that's more than you probably thought it was. So It, it does, and especially add to that, like beavers, you're out in chest waders and sloshing through the swamp and yeah. stuff, taking those traps. But uh, it, it's still, I really wish I had more time to do it because yeah. it is, it is a lot of fun. It's a lot of, it's again that you against the, you know, that thought process and yeah. where are they? How do you put their foot to yeah. like trapping a coyote? Yeah. How do you put his foot right here on the pan? Yeah. How mm -hmm. do you get him to stand right see, here? See, I've never done it with the pan traps. And see, the, uh, honestly, uh, the coyote style trapping I've done with the snares is very similar to the conibear style trapping with the beaver. Right. You're basically trying to figure out where they're going to pass through. Right. And so when I did it, I would use, uh, Fentros. I mean, and the better the Fentro, right. the better, because the more specifically you can narrow down right. where they're crossing at. And with the beavers, of course, a lot of times you're able to actually physically make, you can find the beaver slide yeah. and put it there. But if you know they're passing through a certain area, you can kind of position sticks and make them have to go somewhere. So uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, a conibear style trap is basically two big uh, square steel um how am I trying to explain? It's basically two big squares of steel that are spring loaded together and you open them up against the tension of those springs and you lock them in place. And there's almost like a mouse trap style trigger in the middle. Mm -hmm. And when something swims through, it releases the, uh, the locking mechanism and those two big square things slam shut with a lot of force. And I mean, you can have perfect catches where the, it's just like a mouse trap. It's basically right there on the neck and head and it's really quick. But, uh, with the coyotes, with the snares, you're hoping for a perfect catch, you know, behind the ears and, on the neck and that's that's pretty good too but i would just look for crossings in uh fentros and that's all i did was just try to figure out where they were crossing from and i could cover uh three or four hundred yards of fence pretty easy with eight or nine snares because i mean you're just looking for the specific locations and after you put them out for a while you'll realize where the hot spots are because i would say i ran 10 different snares i had four that caught something and all those four caught doubles or triples yeah. so i mean you'll find the real hot spots they're, the, the movement corridors are the movement corridors, and everything wants to go down that way. Yeah. But you could, the same places you snared, you could figure out ways to set foothold traps on those if you were yeah. interested in that as well. well. This year, I do think I'm going to try uh, baiting. Because, like I say, I got a corner of a fence row, right? Where I know some coyotes are coming through. If I can go out and I kill a deer or two during deer season, which I will do, and I take the carcasses and Put them there in that corner i could see myself potentially having a double or triple on that set in a day and i'd kind of like to try that kind of like to try putting bait out for the snares because i've got a population of coyotes on my farm that i have made extremely smart <laughs> you know what i mean i've gone out there and i've called to them and they know every trick in the book now and it, you i'm not going to kill those coyotes in the daylight with the rifle that's just all there is to it I've, they've i've taught them everything so i'm basically hunting over bait or i'm trapping them so Whenever that season opens up, I think uh, November twenty eighth or something like that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I better double check before yeah. I give false info. Let's see, trapping, trapping. November twelfth through February twenty eighth. Yeah. 
is the date on that. So whenever that that comes in, I'll be at it. So anyway, anything else you guys want to cover? I think I ran through most of the stuff that I wanted to get to. Anything that you have coming up? Or? Uh, just uh, again, the mentioned waterfowl season mostly kicks off around Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't hunted on some of our WMAs, uh, and it's a little bit late to apply now, but we've made some major changes at Slews, yes. we've made major changes at Ballard. Uh, we're really driving to make the hunting experience on public land better. Uh, if you haven't tried hunting in those places, give it a, give it a consideration for the future because uh, we certainly have done, I think, have done a lot to make those areas better. On the Jenny uh, Hole unit, there's a, is there a daily draw now on the it, Jenny Hole? Basically, you're drawn. There's a Monday drawing at the, okay, at the yeah. area, and then you would have it for the whole week. Okay. There's hunted, basically hunted uh, it's closed Tuesday, Wednesday. And so you would have it Thursday through Monday. Uh, and so you there will only be 10 parties hunting in the Jenny Hole. Mm -hmm. And I really believe in the next couple of years, Jenny Hole will be one of the premier duck hunting places around. Mm -hmm. uh, it will be, it, it has always been just an incredible piece of habitat. Everything about it says ducks, speaks ducks, but there was so much pressure, so many people riding around, so much disturbance that the birds could just never get in there and use it. And, and so, to, to remind, Jenny Hole is a unit on Slews, WMA, and Henderson and Union counties. So, so if you if you <clears throat> uh, if you have some interest in trying a really really unique hunt, uh, there will be Monday drawing drawings at Slews the area every Monday night for uh, one of those spots at the Jenny Hole. And so it could be could be really fantastic. Hmm. Which you is, will need a boat. It is a spot that is almost impossible to get to without a boat. So it's one that you need to have a boat or have a friend that has a boat. And Slew's WA is just an incredibly cool place anyway. Yeah. It's an area where the, through the millennia the Ohio River is flooded and gouged out these yeah. natural sloughs. Kind of reminds me of the Oxbow of the Ohio River. Mm -hmm. It's not, I don't think it is an Oxbow because an Oxbow is where the river moved across a yeah, it cut place. itself off. Yeah, yeah, but that's not what happened there. But it, I mean, it literally is like a peninsula that sticks out into the Ohio River. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that it gets flooded like. And crazy. It, it comes back. Um, some of those sloughs come back pretty good ways from from the shore. So that's it just a, shows you through the millennia what has changed. Am I wrong when I say nine thousand acres? It's about right. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's up to eleven thousand. Well, again, yeah. Just if you include all the pieces, yeah. It's, it's I mean, it's had, we've added some pieces yeah. here and there through the years. Hmm. Wild. The, other, the only other thing that I would tell people, if you have any interest in dogs, uh, that, that West Kentucky WMA will host beginning on the, whatever Saturday is like November 8th or 9th, the opening day of our gun season. It's 10th. It's 10th. Okay, so it would be the 10th. It would start on the 10th and run from that Saturday to the following Saturday. And it's the, the National Retriever Championship for field trials. Uh, it, there will be dogs from all over the country coming, people from all over the country coming. Uh, it is it's a pretty spectacular event to see. It's the first time it's ever been held in Kentucky. Uh, and it will be our West Kentucky WMA is turned into one of the premier places in the country to, to train and compete dogs. And so it will, we'll have our first national championship. And if you can get a chance, if you're in Western Kentucky and have interest in seeing dogs do some pretty amazing stuff, these are, they'll throw three or four birds and at, anywhere from 100 to 400 yards, and the dogs have to remember where they are and go pick them up. And, and other tests, they do blind retrieves where they didn't see where the bird got put, but they'll have to be directed by the handler out several hundred yards to the bird. And uh, it's it will be the best of the very, very best there. So it's uh, it's a neat, it'll be a neat thing to see. Let me double check and make sure that I got nothing new. I do, okay, here's one. The, uh, Lee, you probably know the answer to this one, trout stalking. Right now, I know we just stocked a lot of ponds. Yes. 
We've had um we've had a few issues with trout stocking, so we're encouraging people to go to our trout stocking page at fw.ky.gov, our website. Um, there's been a few little issues down at the hatchery where we've had to delay a few of the stockings. Um, it's it's not a giant deal, but uh, just check that to make sure if you plan to go out. A lot of people, they they check that site every day, and as soon as they stock, they want to be there when they're being stocked. Yeah. So go to the trout stocking page. It's right under the fish tab, and uh, check because some we've had to do a little bit of shuffling uh, due to some uh, some issues with with uh, trout numbers from the hatchery which are being resolved, but. Uh, it's no big deal, but it may impact um, um, some of those fins lakes, especially. Yeah, I, I know I did see where several fins lakes near us had been stocked recently, so mm -hmm. I would just check that. Yeah. I knew it had been happening. You also said, "What about creek smallies?" I think creek smallmouths kind of start slowing down yeah, a little I, bit. I, um, I just got back from Arkansas fishing the Buffalo National River for three days, had a blast, and, and did well. I fished Elkhorn right before I left, and and I, there's a thing I call it the dead green look. And when it starts getting this this deep emeraldish green in this time of year, it, to me that signals we're done. Yeah, I don't, um, know and, and I don't know what it is, but it's like every bit of life in the creek completely disappears. There's no minnows, there's no crayfish, there's no fish. It's like it just goes dead. And once that hits, it's not any good again until late February. Yeah, I don't know. It has to do with water temperature. It has yeah. to have something to do with water temperature. And I, I wonder why it's different because the reservoir is picking up right now. Oh, the reservoir small is just starting. Yeah. yeah, so I wonder why because the water temperature can't be. Well, the reservoir holds its heat for a long time. Yeah. A shallow creek like Elkhorn, where a lot of the water is, is chest deep or less, cools off quickly. Yeah. It warms up quickly too, but it cools off quickly. Especially a system like the Elkhorn, which has so many springs feeding it. Um, you know, it just. It cools off rapidly in fall, and I've seen it go from one week you're killing them, and you go the next Saturday and it's completely gone. Yeah, I typically I've I've, I've stopped creek fishing. I'm gonna yeah. hit some reservoirs, hit some foreign ponds, and I'm sure that those those bodies water will still be good. But I'll start creek fishing again. I get the itch so bad in the spring that it's like yeah, February. Oh, I, I, I go in late February. Yeah. If it's uh, it's nice, it's I've had, I've had some fantastic days in late February. I'll tell you after, what, guys. After a warm front. <laughs> I say we call it uh, for today. We've been going for quite a while, but JB, if we have you on again, I want to talk about uh, rafting the Elkhorn because I know you do that quite a bit, mm -hmm. don't you? We have a blast. We love it. I mean, honestly, I'll just go ahead and talk about that now because I, I didn't know you did all that. And then I, of course, I saw, I've seen your raft in your truck before and I'm, I'm friends with you on Facebook. Um, and I, I knew your wife always had her kayak on mm -hmm. top of her truck. So I know you guys go out there quite a bit, but I've watched some of your GoPro videos going down the Elkhorn at 3000 CFS. And mm -hmm. you've probably done it more than that, if I had to guess. 30, well, at above about 4,000, the dam becomes... The portage at the dam becomes. So you uh, put in up above that. We put in at the uh, at the forks. So where, you you run what I call the whitewater section. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you go down below Church's Grove too? Uh, we basically go from there to the uh, American to, Whitewater to, to the American Whitewater Takeout, which is at Knights Bridge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that uh, the section you're talking about. Uh, from the forks, basically from the dam, because the yep. dams, the, the forks of the dam is, is uh, what I call the whitewater section. And it seems like the creek's a lot steeper uh, through that mm -hmm. part. And if it you is. if you catch it, the, the gradient's right much more than yeah. below. I've kayaked that before at fifteen, which is a fun time. On a fishing kayak, that's a hang on for dear life. Uh, I was in a kayak that was way too small for me. But my buddy Bobby, he uh, he was a whitewater. Uh, guide in West Virginia, and so I mean I trust him when it comes to this stuff. He's done the New River and uh, the the Goalie, and those were some of his runs. He did it in a canoe at fifteen, 
Uh, which was it's really challenging. I mean, I mean they're, was, they're different canoes. They're whitewater specific this was, canoes. This was an old town canoe. Yeah, I did <laughs> I mean, it in the, I did it in a canoe one time. That section at like eight hundred. It's rough. Laura, Laura Palmer and I did it. Really? And uh, I thought we were going to die. There was the <laughs> S curves there after yeah. you go over the, after the hawk hole. Yeah, it, the S curves. There's about a three foot, four foot standing wave there that a regular canoe just does not like oh, very much. It's so it's so much fun though. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's a blast. I, I tell you. What, I have fun. Uh, I never have done that section uh, in that water with the Hobie. I have, I have a Hobie fishing boat. I don't know if it, I mean the Hobie's not that maneuverable, but it's so stable. Mm -hmm. It's never going to flip or sink on you. Sometimes it's fun to run that Hobie through stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it actually rides pretty high in the water because it's got so much buoyancy. Yeah. I've done my manta ray at eight hundred <laughs> and had standing waves like seemed like nose high. And I did yeah. fine, but yeah. I mean I got soaked, but I did yeah. fine. The big thing on all that is to just tell people to, you know. Be aware of what you're capable of, yeah. and the water has an amazing yeah. power. So, I mean, somebody two weeks ago died mm -hmm. on the dam there uh, at Elkhorn. Really? I didn't Basically, know they and they they did the right thing. They portaged around the dam. They put in below the dam. They're wearing a life jacket, and they got in, and the suction back into the dam sucked them back into the dam. There's a wicked and, hydraulic and, yeah, there. It's, it's just terrible. So just make sure you know water yeah. has a incredible power and, yeah. and even when it doesn't seem that scary it can be pretty hey pretty water is very very heavy yes and it doesn't take a lot of water to push down on your body it's, to keep it i down. think it's 800 pounds per square inch when you're underneath of a low head dam i wrote a, yes. a column about it when a kid drowned at a great crossing dam on north elkhorn here yeah. said we I, I remember i remember that i didn't know that happened at elkhorn that recently yeah, that's was, pretty rough uh, that's difficult to set up for that drop because you have the dam then you have that little pool then you've got a pretty wicked drop so if yeah. you're unsure and you don't know carry on past that drop and then put in yeah get, get all the way around basically mm -hmm. there's a the uh, a white a rapid there right below yeah, the dam goes yeah. there's a, but there's a spot where you can walk around mm -hmm. kind of almost around that rapid and put, put it down, in down there that's what i'm talking about yeah so that if you you're aren't, unsure just if put you in aren't there. pulled back into yeah. just be aware that that's that even though the dam is here and the river is moving one way it'll, it'll suck, suck you right back into yeah, it. the uh the hard part about that is that if you put in where everybody puts in so you just portage over the dam you walk 10 feet and then you want to put your yeah. kayak in that the chute that you want to run through to get through this next little section is in the middle. Right. So you're you're still 20 feet out from the main chute that's, that you want to go down. So you have to paddle out and then run a left. Yep. And you'll be uh, – there's a good drop. Uh, I actually got a picture off a GoPro on the front of the kayak looking back, and it's going down that drop, and you got Jim Beam in the background mm -hmm. and all that stuff. It's pretty cool. But, yeah, that's a good idea if you're if you're not familiar or with it or very experienced or not comfortable uh, – play it safe and go just, downstream a little further just, yeah. just portage if something is if you're scared of something it looks scary just portage around it walk around it drag your kayak around it and start down below yeah. it's good. Not, not worth getting yeah no one knows how brave you were if you're dead yeah yeah the uh the elkhorn's such a good resource you know you don't want to push people to do anything dangerous but it's so much fun to go out there and do that stuff that i think people should experience it and, and if nothing else go with somebody who knows yeah. yeah like we ran in some people out there one day at about a thousand we were in our fishing kayaks, no big deal for us because we know the lines, we know where everything. There was a couple out there with a very basic, you know, uh, entry-level kayak, mm -hmm. 
that had never been kayaking before. That was their first day. A thousand's pretty rough for your first day. It, it, it was. It was. They. We were like we 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 got them through all that. We got them to the little neighborhood just below uh, the dam there, right mm-hmm. at the S curve, and said, "Walk out and call somebody. You do not want to go yeah. the rest of this river today." I tell you, the my favorite parts of that that river are the area below, directly below the dam, where before you get to from the dam. Basically to the big palisade. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's an awesome spot. The Hawko. That's a Hawko? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a, the palisade is the Hawko. And then uh, I really like the section just up from Church's Grove. Mm-hmm. Uh, that last little drop with it. That's where you were recording on your Facebook page. Right along the along the wall there. The, wall, the yeah. fast wall. That's you get a, flying through there. Yeah. Well, you're talking about Indian Head Rock, right? You're right in that, Jared. Yes. Yeah. So any time that I put in a church, because if I'm going fishing, I don't necessarily want to do the whitewater section. But yeah. I put in at a Church's Grove and, you know, private, I know the landowner there and I have permission. So I will put in up above that. And so I just get to a little bit of whitewater before I have to get the pole out and start catching fish. No doubt. Uh, but I, I love it, man. It's yeah, fun. I used to take the pole with me when we paddled that section and I always came back minus a tip or something. So yeah, I've seen, I finally pretty much got so I'm not taking, if I'm paddling this, I'm not taking my pole because I always end up losing a pole. I, I've personally seen that pole get hung in a tree going through a rapid oh. and that gets stuck and yep. it's just hanging. I was thinking, I got to go back down here tomorrow and grab that. It That's why I don't use those rear yeah. Kind of stick up. I don't use them because yeah. you'll be fishing with one rod. You look back and your rod's gone because it got hung in a tree a mile above you. Uh, the one spot I've ever lost tackle on the Elkhorn is also in that section where I uh, had my tackle and everything in front of me and I flipped going through something. I can't remember what it was, but it dumped all my tackle and it was just gone. So it's an expensive mistake. If you're ever on the Elkhorn, there seems to be groups all the time that meet there around noon or one, mm-hmm. and uh, so on that upper fork section. Uh, so just if you do it, make sure you're with somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah, and definitely, definitely play it safe around the dam. But it's well worth it. And if you yeah. honestly, if you haven't kayaked before, that's probably not the section no, to do. it's not the section no. to do. I would, I would but put, you can do the lower section yeah. and get, get your bounce. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, there are some good riffles for a first, uh, you know, for not even a first-time kayaker, but for a, a fairly new kayaker on the Church's Grove to Knightsbridge yeah. section, or you can run Church's Grove all the way down to Peaks Mill. There's some good little riffles on those areas as well. I mean, think about how lucky we are living here yeah. and having that resource 10 minutes, 10 minutes away. away. It's great. I mean, there's, yeah, you know, we drove last week to, uh, uh, to far eastern Kentucky to go, go rafting. And, but I mean, we have this great Elkhorn right here and, I drove all, 12 hours to fish, but yeah. I have Elkhorn right here. Yeah. Too. yeah. And we, but we have, and there are probably people coming here that to far to go there. Yeah. Go to Elkhorn, exactly. So, uh, yeah. have you ever done the new? I, I have not done the new. It's on, <laughs> it's on our list of things to do. But. I, I got, uh, I did it one time. I did uh, the marathon trip, which is actually in the goalie, I believe. Right. And it, well, I mean, some of those rapids are scary. Yeah. I mean, you're talking five plus. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, that is something that I would, I mean, it's like, Okay, I'm going to do it because I'm in this boat and I have to. But those are things that, like, it's not as fun as Elkhorn because Elkhorn is like you know, you're playing around. Mm-hmm. But there are times out there on the on the you goal, playing. you're yeah. actually like physically afraid. Like, you, you, I mean, and that's their class five is a high likelihood. I mean, it's class five because you have a high chance of dying. Yeah, and it's but uh, with those on those rivers, you're with guides yeah. that do this every day. They know the lines that you know. The part of it is knowing the exact line to run where yeah. you want to put that boat. What you what the water's going to do, and so like we've run, we ran the four of the first runs in our raft we did was on the Okoe, uh-huh. the middle section of the Okoe, and I was terrified the whole time. Yeah, and fortunately we had somebody with us who had done it a bunch, 
and he knew every line to take. Yeah. And we did it fine. Everything was cool. But if I had been driving, we would have been upside down because I wouldn't have known exactly where those lines were. Well, then, like, so it's good to have that that knowledge of that river. That guy that uh, we went with, his name was Joe Thacker, and he was really good. He'd been doing it for a long time. He, uh, I mean, because the problem is, even if you're a guide, you're in the back and you're kind of driving the boat, but you're relying on your guests to, to paddle. Yeah. And so in the, like, after we went through the first rapid, he's like, all right, you over here, he's switching people around, trying to get the power right. So he could actually have, because he's sure relying on everybody else. Yeah. We lost a girl in a, I said we lost her. She fell out of the boat in a class five. It's called Pillow Rock down there. That's a good one. And she, mm-hmm. yeah, she had to swim uh, a class five, basically. She came out on the pillow because you get, you, you know, it's basically uh, the water is pushing against this rock and then pushing up and it's creating a pillow. So the water is almost coming from straight below you. And so you get up there and the raft kind of shoots up in the air. You're about six or seven feet above the rest of the river below you. She came out there because, I mean, it basically flips over on you. And she had to swim that five. And I remember he, you know, he got the, the throw rope out and he threw it. And he, she couldn't catch it. And we were like, I mean, it was like, I would be scared if I was floating through a class five like that. No it, doubt. Because, I mean, you get pushed up against a rock or into a sieve or anything like that. I mean, that current's just going to push you down. You got to hope that it doesn't. And that's one of the benefits of like a river like the Gali or the Ocoee or something where there's a bunch of traffic. You have all these people standing there with throw ropes to help rescue you yeah. versus being on the you know, the Elkhorn by yourself where there's you know nobody to throw you to and, rescue and you. And I will say this. People probably think, oh, the Elkhorn, even at a 1,000, the Elkhorn's shallow enough for me to stand up in most time. When you stand mm-hmm. up, that's how you're most likely to get you can knocked get, off your feet. You can, get hurt, you can get hurt bad on the Elkhorn at a 1,000. Well, the thing, if you stand up, that's how he always said, never put your feet down. Keep your yep. feet up because you— you don't want your feet getting stuck in a rock or something. And like you that. just snap your ankle and you're gone. Well, not just that, but it can push you're you trapped. Over. Yeah, and then you got pressure and you can't get out. Yeah. Now, always feet up, but bouncing. I mean, yeah. you, feet downstream. The biggest, uh, the closest calls I've ever had on the Elkhorn or any creek around here are always with down trees. Yeah. It's always the trainers. Yeah. yeah. And those trees can go down quick in a storm. So mm-hmm. it's important to look up ahead. I remember last year there was a tree down on the Elkhorn. I wanted to say between Peaks Mill and 127 but it was in one of those spots in high water i was like man that could be potentially dangerous because there was one of those that had like six inches of space between the creek and it pushing like 800 to a thousand somebody came through there in a kayak and didn't get out in time or do something right i mean you try to go you try to push up into that it's gonna push you under I don't know what's down there. And things, weird yeah. things change, like on that whitewater section of the Elkhorn. Mm-hmm. One day we went down it, and there's a cattle fence mm-hmm. that's fallen and is dragging in the river. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's 20 feet of cattle fence just mm-hmm. laying in the river from a cliff above. And you, know, you aren't paying attention. You paddle into that, you're going to you, you're, you're gonna be in serious trouble. Yeah, that's no good. I mean, I've, I've told Lee before that I'm amazed how quickly the creek changes. Over the last two years, just based on the floods we've had, uh, it's shooting off in new channels. Uh, there's islands that used to be there that aren't there anymore, undercut banks, or, or you know what I mean? It's, it's crazy how quick the creek changes with all that uh, water pressure. But. And then, like, the white water section at 3,500, the places you go are totally different than where you go at 1,000. Yeah. Yeah, that's like, oh, again, that right at the end, right before you get to Softly's mm-hmm. bottom there, you're there's a couple of sections that you can't go at a thousand feet. It's too, too shallow, but, uh, surf city is one of the spots that it's got a four mm-hmm. or five foot standing wave. You go sliding down huge incline and at the bottom, there's a big, you know, four or five foot standing wave mm-hmm. at 3000 is pretty darn exciting. Hmm. I'll have to try it sometime. I'll go out there with you sometime. Yeah, we got we to gotta wrap this thing. We've actually been going for way too long, guys. But appreciate you coming on, JB. Uh, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lee. Great time. All right. Take it easy, guys. All right, man. 